Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? As you know, there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States. This show works to address problems with the integrity of those involved in the wrongful convictions and things that can be fixed and how. We will talk to victims of wrongful arrest and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all, and that everyone needs to be aware this widespread problem in our country does not discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim of the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. Keep in mind that this is a live show. Feel free to call or email with questions or topics you would like to discuss or hear discussed on our show today or in the future. Today, our guest is a colleague and friend of mine, Kevin McLean. Kevin, good morning. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing this wonderful COVID-19 morning? Good morning, Jeff. I uh, really enjoy the opportunity to uh, speak to your group. And uh, yeah, we're kind of in, I'm in Illinois. We're, uh, we're sheltering in place at the moment. Yeah, that's, uh, it it's, looks like most of us in the United States are sheltering in place. And the good news is it sounds like some states are going to start to ease some of that a little bit and kind of get back to normalcy. But I don't know what that'll ever be like again. You know, will we ever get back to what life is really what it was? Absolutely. And, you know, you think about, Jeff, with the kind of work we do, you know, dealing in the criminal defense sector that uh, right now, you know, I'm sure just like yourself, I've got several pending cases where we're either getting ready to go to trial or there are cases where people are claiming, uh, you know, actual innocence that are sitting in prison right now that we need to go out and be talking face to face with witnesses. And because of all the uh, COVID-19 restrictions, it's really, you know, uh, putting us in an awkward position to not be able to be able to do our job to assist you know, with these people, and every day, especially when it comes to post-conviction cases, a witness could disappear or, God forbid, die. And so this kind of delay in time for us is really critical that we get back out and get moving as soon as possible. You bring up some, some really good points, and, and let me just, just backtrack a little bit and tell the listeners a little bit about you, because as I, I'm sure they've heard just from the brief, brief few seconds or minute that you were speaking that you're extremely knowledgeable and passionate about this profession and industry. So for our listeners, Kevin McLean is a licensed private investigator in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and Missouri. He is a board-certified criminal defense investigator, a board-accredited investigator, and president of Kev- Kevin W. McLean Investigations, LTD, which is a multi-state investigative firm with 20 investigators that have over 200 years of investigative experience. He is qualified as an expert in criminal investigations and standardized field sobriety testing. He has also been a college instructor in personal security. Mr. McLean 
began his career in 1993 and gained distinction as one of the region's premier private investigators assisting some of the finest criminal defense and civil attorneys with major felonies, personal injuries, wrongful deaths, excessive force shootings, civil rights investigations, police misconduct investigations, white-collar defense investigations, corporate investigations, and high-profile media cases. He has been a featured speaker at the national conferences for NLADA, Life in the Balance, Capital Defense Training Seminars in New Orleans, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Florida, and St. Louis. He's spoken for many different uh, organizations and industries. He's taught for John Rapping's Gideon's Promise for Returning Attorneys. He has also been a featured speaker at many international and national conferences. He has presented over 20 criminal defense subject matters in over 25 states. Um, with his background as an investigator, he has the distinction of being part of the defense team on two Illinois death penalty cases, which were dismissed prior to trial. And that's the first time in Illinois history since Capital Litigation Division was formed in 2000. Mr. McLean has also conducted over 80 death penalty investigations as a fact and mitigation investigator around the country, including two recent cases. So there's a lot to talk about this morning. Kevin, I, I know there's probably a few things I missed, but is there anything that you would like to point out or highlight about your background that, that I may have left out? No, I think you, you covered it uh, pretty well. It's uh, Like you say, it's always been a, a passion of mine. You know, Since I was a child, I loved uh, Sherlock Holmes and James Bond and when I got the opportunity to go back to college, I was going back to become an attorney, and I got involved in doing uh, illegal investigations. And actually, the case I worked on was a case where it appeared there might have been some police misconduct, which really kind of blew me out of the water that that could actually happen, where some evidence could be planted or something like like that. And that, that was back in 1993. And I thought, holy cow, you know, um, and to be able to offer uh, to get to the facts, to, to seek the truth, uh, that was just really appealing to me. And like I say, I was able to do what I've always dreamed to do and start doing you know investigations. Uh, of course, back in 1993, uh, the term of, of having a criminal defense investigator was kind of unheard of. I think uh, it really came to light uh, during the O.J. Simpson case in 1996, whenever the uh, uh, infamous Furman tapes were discovered. And then people realized that there actually was investigators on the other side that were looking into the facts and just trying to uncover, you know, the, you know, the truth of the matter. And that's what really uh, appealed to me, and that's where I kind of got got my start, you know, doing that. That's awesome, and and I've somewhat similar to some degree, but for years I was really on the other side of of doing investigations and believed was of the belief of. Uh, guilty until proven innocent. Um, it, you know, I, I was I was jaded until I started doing criminal defense work, and then I realized, wow, they're not guilty until proven innocent. You really need to put on a good defense right away. And just just to point out with everything you just said and what I, I read earlier, for our listeners, do you know there are approximately two million people in jail or prison in the United States? And there's no perfect formula that can be applied on how many are innocent. But it's to believe to be it is believed to be anywhere from two percent to as much as ten percent. So do the math, and I'm no math expert, but even on the low end, that equates to forty thousand people 
or on the high end, it could be as much as 200,000 innocent men and women who have been wrongfully convicted. And we're going to talk about some of them today. And that does not include those who have been wrongfully charged of a crime either. So those numbers are much higher. And really, there's no one better to have on this show today to talk about all that but Kevin McLean. So Staggering, they, staggering statistics, aren't they? They really are. And, and again, I, I don't, and that's one of the reasons for this podcast. I, I don't believe that people understand that because we're all blinded thinking that when somebody gets arrested, they're guilty. And I, look, I was guilty of that for, for many decades until I realized that there are, unfortunately, some bad apples. And, and uh, just, just a caveat, and I, I say this on almost every show, I am pro-law enforcement. I talk about my, my friends um, who are currently um, wearing blue and, and protecting us or those that are retired, and there's so many good ones out there. there there's a ton, uh, and most are good. It's just a few bad apples, and sometimes it's mistakes. Sometimes it's the, the prosecutors. You know, there's, there's different things that go into play. So we totally are, are supportive of our uh, law enforcement and, and um, men and women in, in blue, but because of all these issues and because of these staggering numbers, those are the very reasons the defense must conduct its own investigation instead of relying on the investigation conducted by the prosecutorial team. And that, you're right about the O.J. Simpson case, that really is when it was put in the spotlight that, wow, this guy planted evidence, may have planted evidence. He, he lied on the stand. I mean, you know, there, there's, we can talk about that case just for hours on, on things that they screwed up. So let me ask you this, Kevin. I know your work has taken you all over and you're probably aware of, of a lot of police cor- corruption, especially Locally, for me, it's Philadelphia, and for you, it's Chicago, and those two are really, um, are pretty big and been in the news lately, and I know Chicago is doing a lot of revisiting old cases because of some things that came to light over the past couple years. Do you, do these situations play a role in some of your investigations, and do you see this trend increasing? Uh, Yes, I've actually worked uh, some cases out of Chicago if you just Google the term, uh, the Chicago basement uh, files or basement tapes, right. um, yep. there was tons of old case file information that was found uh, in a precinct up in Chicago and uh, what they were known as uh, street files, which these were the reports that you or I or defense team would never see. These were like internal documents and things like that that never were supposed to make it uh, into uh, whatever a prosecutor would turn over discovery and things. And we just got done working a case, uh, Jeff, just a while back of one of these basement file cases. And we was able to get uh, to these young men who now have been in jail for uh, basically prison for 16 years. We finally uh, got them out. But it was, uh, they've been in for 16 years for some really bad behaviors uh, on some officers as far as how they were fudging evidence. Uh, one of the key facts in one of the cases was that uh, they was talking about there possibly could have been a surveillance camera uh, at this location. And so, uh, keep in mind, we're investigating a case from 16 years ago. Okay, so we're trying to go back out and recreate information. And that's one of the challenges we have 
in doing these cases. And we're trying to recreate information where sometimes it might not be there. The crime scene may be gone or something. Fortunately, this housing location was still there. And the, the, the big issue was, well, there was no surveillance cameras there. Well, what had happened, one of the officers had gone out there, they'd sent them back out there to take some pictures to show that there was no surveillance cameras there. Well, the way he took the picture, you couldn't see the surveillance camera. And, and so, you know, it's like, look, instead of taking it like you should and document, here it is. No one ever did that. And, of course, now, all these years later, um, a lot of people will, will make an assumption. Nobody will go out and verify information. Uh, sad to say, but sometimes attorneys uh, just believe what they read in reports and think, well, that's it, and we're done, and, okay, we need to either plead out or, or do something. But finally, when you have attorneys that will actually take the time and say, look, we're going to dig into this, and we're going to go by piece by piece, frame by frame, line by line on this discovery, and make sure what they're saying is accurate and true. And that's why we went back out and reinvestigated that case and putting all this different you know, information, tracking down old witnesses and stuff like that, was able to build the case to show a claim of actual innocence and, and basically saying he had an alibi and he wasn't where they said he was you know, doing this uh, heinous crime. But uh, those type of things, I had a, another case uh, up there that... Uh, you know, you've got several officers up there in Chicago that have given given that entire you know city a bad name for their police department. And I know there's a lot of good officers up there because I've met them before, but there's a few really really bad apples that would intimidate and threaten, and probably the most uh, I, I don't know uh, challenging thing I've ever had to do is when I've been sitting in a uh, prison and interviewing a witness, uh, a person who now has been in prison for 25 years. And I'm talking to them about my case I'm investigating, and they start talking about why they were there and how they had an alibi, uh, but no one ever investigated. And when somebody puts a gun to your head and says, sign this statement, you know, um, and you're, you're a young man, what are you going to do? You know, and, right. and I would talk to him and say, hey, you know, I said, you, you've got a case here still. I mean, you, they said, look, I've got two more years to serve. I don't want to make any waves or anything like that. I just want to go home. And, and, and that's the mindset of a lot of them. I mean, they, they were wrongfully charged, wrongfully convicted, and they were crying out from the prison cells, but nobody ever heard them. I mean, it wasn't until, you know, the last several years that now you've created all these innocence projects and, and different groups that are, you know, looking into these things, like the Exoneration Project and, and different things, uh, Northwestern's Bloom Legal Clinic and, in places like that, especially out of Chicago, and uh, they're looking into these things and really uh, exposing a lot. That uh, no one just no one took the time to do it. That was the problem, Jeff. Nobody just took the time to listen to their stories and say, "Well, we need to investigate this." Mm-hmm. You're you're absolutely right. And there's it, it is just the the few bad apples. But when they've been working for twenty, twenty four years, twenty five years, and their numbers start to really become uh, astonishing for the the wrongs that they did. And uh, some of the earlier episodes I've I've had on my podcast, uh, Jeffrey Walker, who was arrested in 2013. He was a a Philadelphia narcotics officer for he was on the force for about 24 years. And in 2013, he was arrested by the FBI for Hobbs Act robbery. And he immediately began to cooperate with the federal government. And he served three years in federal prison. And he was released in 2016. And he began uh, or continued to cooperate 
with the civil rights attorneys for wrongful convictions and civil lawsuits brought against him and other members of the Philadelphia Narcotics Unit. So, you know, he's uh, somebody who's, he, he is, as he took it, he, he took a bite of the, the, um, um, the poisonous apple, I guess, you know, within the department and you can't turn back after that. It, it becomes a challenge. So when you have those officers out there and they're going to create all kinds of issues for, <clears throat> for their cases, you brought something up that I really don't think we've ever spent much time talking about on, on this podcast is that we get a lot of what we call post-conviction relief acts. So um, for the listeners, it's where the defendant is trying to get a new trial and they need to identify that there was either ineffective counsel at the time of their trial or that there's new evidence that wasn't available at the time of their trial. And we get, I know both Kevin and I work on a lot of those cases. And, and Kevin, you, you just mentioned how when their cases are 16 years old, it's so difficult to figure things out and try to, to um, investigate. It, it makes it more challenging, I should say. And for example, I, I just got a case where we're trying to find information from 19 from the 1980s and there's a lot of people who've since died um, some of the records aren't available in the police departments or, or the the court systems anymore because they're supposed to be microfished but who knows if they really are and you know do they even exist anymore they didn't have computers back then like they do today so everything um, not everything was saved like it used to be it really becomes more difficult. I guess we can dive into that a little bit more, you know, trying to find these these folks that are out there. But that's where it's important to invest up front in an investigator during the trial stage, the actual when you were charged with a crime and, and not don't. I tell all the all the clients and everybody I talk to, don't think because you you didn't do it that you're going to be found not guilty. Honestly, I, I think, in my, in my opinion, when you go in front of a jury trial whether you're innocent or guilty, I think you have a 50-50 chance. What do you think? <laughs> oh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, a lot of people, their mindset is, well, if, if they weren't guilty, they wouldn't be here right now. You know, right. So there must have been something that uh, you know, the state's attorney you know, believes is true. And so, therefore, you know, you're already at a, with a, a stacked deck, so to speak. You know, in other words, you've already got you know, a couple strikes against you, and now you've got to prove yourself innocent, which is not the way our legal system is supposed to work. You know, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. But uh, you know, 27 years of doing this, I can tell you, and I've seen this time and time again with, with uh, families that have never... Uh, ever had any kind of uh, criminal, uh, you know, charges or history or any kind of things whatsoever within their you know family unit, and all of a sudden one of their loved ones gets charged with something, and they are just just blindsided because they thought, well, I thought the legal system was innocent until proven guilty. We almost feel like we're guilty and we have to prove our innocence. And I said, well, I said, unfortunately, the system, you know, even though it's the best system in the world. Still, uh, it has a lot of flaws, and, and you're right, uh, especially if you get the media. Uh, it's a high-profile case, and the media jumps on board with it. Uh, good luck with that, because mm-hmm. they're going to spin things, and uh, I don't care what the facts are. Whatever sells you know, news stories or gets 
uh, ratings and gets viewers is what's going to get onto the air. So um, I think one of the good things, though, Jeff, that's happening anymore is there's a lot of shows like yourself, your shows coming out exposing and just enlightening really the general public about what really goes on and to, for them to be their own detective and not to assume what they see or what they read is all true, to verify information themselves. And that's why I wish you know, like jurors would do the same thing, that they would not just assume what is being said, that they would listen to both sides of a case being presented before they make a determination. Because a lot of times the case is so overwhelming on one side and because the defense doesn't have you know, any representation or poor representation, the deck is so stacked or just like, well, they didn't present anything, so we had no other choice, um, you know, but to find them guilty because, you know, they didn't show us anything to prove uh, any differently. And it's not the client's fault. The client is trusting, you know, his, his attorney that either he's been appointed or, in, in one of my cases, we'll talk about here a little bit, that he hired and that the attorney just was incompetent uh, and that's probably being nice to the person uh, about what he did to you know my one particular client um, <clears throat> so I think now with like the ID channel and all these different the first 48 and all these other things people are starting to understand things and they're becoming their own armchair detectives and they're really starting to look at things and now wrongful convictions are becoming more and more like okay I can see how this can happen you know, before I think people were kind of like, oh, yeah, right. You know, they're just using some kind of excuse or something. But I think now more people are more realizing with the advent of uh, DNA and uh, different ways that, uh, you know, information can now be acquired from previous, you know, years gone by. I'm hoping that, uh, you know, the general public is more, you know, uh, open minded. And not just that mindset, well, if they charge them, they must be guilty. And, you know, it's, you're like, like you said, getting investigators into the game and into the investigation real early on to investigate everything. You know, um, I've always said our investigation begins where the police reports end. That's, you know, right. that's just like a roadmap for us. Uh, yeah, I assumed, if, if I assumed on every case I got, especially when we're talking death penalty cases, because think about this. In a death penalty case, what they're saying, basically, in a nutshell, is the state is going to charge the most uh, heinous charge they can throw at your client. In other words, we're going to stick a needle, and we're going to kill your client because we believe he did this most heinous crime. So when you're reading your reports and, and the police reports and stuff, it doesn't look good for your client at all. I mean, it's just like, here's all the evidence we got, here's all the information we got. Okay, well, you've got to be objective. You've got to look at everything and be objective and not get wrapped up in just like, well, what they're saying must be true. You have to go out and verify everything. And that's where, with one of our cases, where our client, young man, was charged with killing his best friend. And uh, when you look at the facts of it, it was like, all right, they arrested our client right at the border of Canada. So it looks like, well, he's fleeing. He's fleeing the country. He had killed him uh, along with the co-defendant, and they're taking off, and they're leaving town. Okay? So on the surface, it looks like, aha, you know, this is all part of it. And then there was the infamous cell phone call. Now, keep in mind, this case is back in, uh, let's see, it was 2003. So cell phones are really just kind of starting to, 
you know, get more into the general public more and more, but they still got a lot of problems with the sailor reception and everything like that. So the police department and everybody else kept on harping on this one particular phone call where it was between the co-defendant and our client and saying this was a 56-second phone call. What about this? Because they were trying to infer that that was when the co-defendant calls our client to come over to the uh, garage to do the dirty deed, in other words, to kill his best friend. So they harped on that 56-second phone call. Look, here it is. And when you look at it right there on its surface, there's the report, Jeff. It says 56 seconds. And you're saying, son of a gun. That's, that, that looks to be true. Well, then you turn the next page, and you see where it says actual connect time and actual disconnect time. You know what, how many seconds that was? It was 10 Not, seconds. Wow. It was 10 seconds. But more importantly than that, the phone number that they assumed was being called from the co-defendant to our client, the phone number was not our client's. The phone number happened to be the landlord's because our <laughs> client didn't have a phone. So it was tapped into to the, the landlord's number. So it opened right. up all kinds of like, wait a second. How can this be? Well, my analogy was this. The, the call was being placed inside a, a metal garage. So back in 2003, you're not going to have really good cellular reception anyway. So it's going to take a while for that thing to dial out and finally connect up to something. So that would explain why it took so long to dial, but then the actual connect time was only 10 seconds. And by the way, the, 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 when it connected, it was to an answering machine. It wasn't even to an sure. individual. It was an answering machine. So that's just one example of not assuming and verifying this information. And uh, this is one of the fortunate times ever in my lifetime that we was able to sit across this, the, the uh, table from an entire uh, prosecution team, the prosecutor, the lead investigators, and we actually presented our case of actual innocence to say, mm-hmm. you guys, you know, you missed it. Our guy right. was not there, and here's what happened, and we can prove it. And there was also some other evidence that nobody had uh, uh, even looked at, uh, one being a disposable camera. And that disposable camera was basically uh, the lifesaver for our client. I mean, literally, because this was a death penalty case. And when we, the, the police did not look at the disposable camera or what was on it. Well, it became really important because it had a timeline of that particular day of our client and his little boy had a picture of him there in a, in a park in this uh, small town. And then it showed a timeline of like when they were traveling to head up to Canada. They were taking like, you know, photos were stopped here, were stopped there. The key thing, it, it, Jeff, I'm telling you, your listeners will, will not believe me on this, but I got the pictures to show it. But this would make a great movie because his saving grace of his entire uh, basically, to save his life, was a T-shirt he was wearing. The, temp, the T-shirt said Pimpology 101. Now, what became important about that T-shirt? Because every picture he was in from Friday until Sunday, from Friday afternoon, the, the, the murder happened Friday night, early Saturday morning. From Friday night until Sunday, he wore the same shirt. So, let's get all your listeners out there to become CSIs. If that murder were to happen and he's wearing that same shirt, okay, wouldn't there have been blood transfer on that shirt? You would think. They did every kind of trace 
evidence test they could do on that shirt. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. At the end of the presentation we do to the prosecution team, the state's attorney says, will your client take a lie detector test? We said, absolutely. Two days later, he takes a lie detector test. He passes that. And uh, we was able to get him uh, basically dismissed the case. Capital murder case uh, was dismissed. Um, it was bad also, Jeff, because we went back to the crime scene. We was almost paralleling the state's investigation. We were almost like literally one day behind him on everything that was going on. We went back to the crime scene. Our CSI found a weapon, a bloody weapon. Oh, my they God. They missed it. We called them up and said, hey, Jeez. you guys want to come back and collect this? You know what they said? They said, nope, we've already been there. We're not doing it. So we had to get the local authorities to come over and collect the evidence. That is unbelievable. But no surprise. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to pause right here for a quick commercial yeah. break. But I, I want to just say, before we go to break, trust no one, believe nothing, and reinvestigate everything because you never know what you're going to find. And that's a perfect example of it. You need to be there. It's like the lottery. You need to be in it to win it. Don't don't. Yeah. Don't play Absolutely. Russian roulette with your life. <laughs> Absolutely right. not. All right, folks, we'll be right back for uh, a word from our sponsors. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator, featuring stories and articles on current topics and issues written by professional investigators and leading experts in the profession. Real equipment reviews from top surveillance investigators with years of experience. PI Magazine offers investigative tips and practical advice for the newly licensed to the seasoned veteran investigator. Catch up on recommended sources, vendors, and professional services. Don't miss a single issue of PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer, Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening. 
listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? To reach Jeff Stein or his guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can send an email to Stein at elpspda.com. Now, back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Welcome back and... We are talking with Kevin McLean, a excellent criminal defense investigator who's worked on more cases than we can all count. We were just talking uh, about some of the things that occurred in uh, a past case or two or three. But Kevin, during the course of your career, are there any particular criminal defense cases that stand out to you that um, that we didn't talk about yet that's just something different um, or seeing somebody come home. I mean, it could be the investigation. It could be the outcome. It could be, you know, reuniting them with their family. Is there anything that stands out to you? Yes. There's one particular case in, uh, it stands out to me in so many different respects uh, that uh, it was a case that I started early in my career in 1997, I got involved in a case. It was the People versus Gerald Simonson. It's an Illinois case, Marion County. And I, I cite all of this because uh, uh, Gerald Simonson, who was the defendant, he actually was my friend at the end of all this, um, had been charged, a death penalty case. He was charged with uh, a brutal murder of uh, a woman uh, next, uh, that had come out to his house. Uh, in a small little town in Farina, Illinois, and uh, one thing you always want to keep in mind with with the you know people who hear this never want, you never want to be the last person to see somebody alive uh, because the spotlight becomes on you real quick. And uh, Gerald Simonson, uh, you know, pristine uh, person in the community, uh, former teacher out of Minnesota, had no criminal history whatsoever, and uh, he went into this. Uh, basically got accused, uh, got uh, charged with this murder, and this is back in 1992, okay. It's kind of interesting. I remember when I was not even doing this kind of work, I was still involved. matter of fact, I used to do radio, Jeff, so I was in my radio career during that time. And I remember hearing this uh, news story about this this murder that happened up in this small town, and I just thought, wow, that was kind of interesting because uh, not only was she found naked laying out uh, by a um, the side of the road in this rural community, but our uh, client, uh, Simonson, was found knocked in the head in his garage. So you actually had two you know, different people that were victimized here. And I thought, man, that was really kind of weird. And then here it is, speed forward, 1997, uh, I get brung into the case. Now, here's how this happens. And you got to talk about divine intervention, because I think this is the only way this happened. Uh, a uh, public defender had approached me. I'd started doing public defender work in 96 in my local county and approached me and said, hey, I've got this post-conviction case, and this guy's claiming, you know, actual innocence. And uh, she really didn't know what to do. She says, uh, I guess I need to go down there and see him. And she said, would you go with me? Because she's afraid to go to uh, the prison, the prison, Menard Prison. It's kind of like the Alcatraz of the Midwest. It's on the banks of the Mississippi, and it was built like around the late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, so I said, sure. 
I'll go down there with you. And so that was the start of my 12-year journey because I sat through a three-hour interview with our client. And at the end of that time, I was like, oh, my God, I may have an innocent person here. I may have somebody who's actually innocent. I'm new and I'm young to this industry. I have no idea. What do I do? I mean, I'm, I'm like, I learned I got a person's life in my hands now. Uh, the jury found him guilty, but they didn't give him death, but they gave him a life without parole, which is basically a death sentence anyway. Um, so I just started in researching. I started in trying to reach out anywhere I could to anybody I could that might have any kind of relevant information because the fact pattern of this case was uh, really interesting. And when I present this case around the country, people are saying, wow, I've never seen anything like this um, because there was... Three different crime scenes. You had the scene where uh, the body was found, along with our client being knocked in the head uh, in his uh, garage. And then you <clears throat> had a uh, crime scene where there was a her burned-out car, which was about three and a half uh, miles away. So you had her, her scene, you had his scene, and then you had another scene three and a half miles away. So you had three different crime scenes. And... Um, this is back when DNA was just coming into existence. So uh, the DNA uh, they had that they said that they had found that connected um, our client with the victim was one pristine spot of blood uh, that was on the back of his three-day-old underwear. Okay, That was the only link between the two of them. And that was not discovered uh, for several weeks uh, matter of fact, all the evidence was drove around in the back of a uh, uh, police car for about two or three months in the middle of the summertime, and then it goes into the lab to finally go get tested, and uh, that pristine spot of blood was uh, the thing that ended up uh, convicting our client was, uh, was that, and then there was also some uh, what we call junk science testimony. It was called inevitable retrograde amnesia because our client had been knocked out there should have been a certain amount of time that he could not remember anything prior to being knocked out. And since our client knew everything about what happened up until the time he got knocked out, he was lying. And this is what this expert came in and testified to. And there was no one to rebut that testimony or anything else. And it wasn't until years later that uh, the appellate attorney interviewed this uh, expert and said, okay, what scientific you know, uh, journals or research are you basing your analysis and your testimony on? She says, none. It's just my opinion. And that oh was it. God. That was all. So I'm back, okay, going back to 1997. I'm sitting in there. Three hours later, I'm coming out. I'm like, I could have an innocent man here. So I start doing my research. I start reaching out. I start looking into DNA, trying to understand DNA because... Uh, even to this day, I don't think anybody really understands DNA, but can you imagine what a jury in 1992 was thinking about DNA when it was just coming in? Yeah, and so, a lot has changed since then, but absolutely. I find a, a DNA a company that was just actually coming into existence, and I provided them the information, you know, uh, and I said, look, I'm working for a public defender, and, uh, I, you know, we got this post-conviction case, and literally we don't have any money. All right, we don't have any money, uh, but they were kind enough to help uh, give them a little shout out. Genetic Technologies out of uh, outside St. Louis, Missouri, helped create an affidavit about explaining DNA and and the problems that you had with this DNA sample. So 
then, I, like I said, I'm reaching out anywhere and everywhere, thinking outside the box. I'm watching an HBO special called Paradise Lost about the West Memphis Three. I see a guy on there. He's called a criminal profiler. I didn't know what that was. His name was Brett Turvey. I call Brett Turvey up, and I, I identify myself again, and I explain to him the case. And I said, by the way, Brett, I said, I'm working with a public defender, and we don't have any money. And he says, send me all the pictures, all the documents you got. And matter of fact, this, this uh, case eventually got featured in one of Brett Turvey's uh, criminal profiling books. So um, I was reaching out anywhere and everywhere. And like you mentioned at the first of the show about post-conviction cases, this is literally a paper chase. And what I mean by that is you have to recreate and track down every single piece of paper that ever was involved in the case. In other words, every police report from the sheriff's office, from the state police, from the local police, uh, you know, from the EMTs, from the ambulance company, from anybody and everybody. You have to track them all down and, and try to start finding out, okay, is there any missing evidence? Is there any uh, evidence that was withheld from us? Is there uh, you know, any, any types of things like that? Uh, we definitely could show that the uh, attorney uh, was an effective assistance of counsel. In 1992, our client paid $50,000 for representation. That's wow. a lot of money. That and is a lot of money. In 1992. You know how much investigation was done on his case, Jeff? None. Fifteen hours, but that was oh, all done goodness. after he was found guilty. Oh my goodness! And most of that time was done uh, basically transferring evidence uh, to his new attorney and stuff like that that he's going to have to have to try to assist him uh, on the case. Fifteen hours. The investigators who were handling the case were former retired uh, state troopers, uh, detectives, and uh, here the lead investigator was also a state trooper detective. Actually, that was their, you know, their, like, protege, who they had mentored and trained. So now mm -hmm. they're investigating him. So sure. there really wasn't going to be a lot of, you know, finger-pointing or anything else, or else they'd be saying, you know, you're the ones who trained him, so you guys were, you know, basically incompetent also. So <clears throat> the only reason I found all that information out was, as I mentioned, about being a paper chase. I had gone to the former attorney's uh, office, and uh, he basically had ended up uh, getting uh, charged uh, and was found guilty of basically embezzling funds uh, on other cases uh, with people in the states and stuff. So basically his office was left abandoned. And so there was all kinds of documents in there. And his partner allowed me to go in there. I was able to find uh, all the invoices uh, from our case. And so I was able to recreate a timeline of events and what he did and, more importantly, what he didn't do. So that assisted us on uh, helping to build our case of post-conviction um, you know, relief, trying to show ineffective assistance of counsel. Now, <clears throat> we're going forward to try to investigate if there was a failure to investigate. And one of the things we had looked into uh, was supposedly there was like a, uh, a semen-like substance that was collected and was tested and results came back that never was disclosed to anybody. And this is what the lead investigator testified to at trial. And when this so, came, so Brady, came Brady, out, viol Brady violations. Big time. When that came out, can you imagine? Because now all of a sudden the jury is hearing not only was this a murder, but this was a sex crime that went bad. Okay? This was an atom bomb. And the defense attorney 
didn't even follow up and ask any questions about it whatsoever, which, you know, in hindsight, you never ask a question you don't know the answer to anyway. But still, it was an atom bomb. And it just laid out there for the jury to say, hmm, okay, now this, this, you know, this went from you know, a seduction to a rape to a murder. So we wanted to go find out if this was true, that there actually was a substance that was collected. So we go and interview the uh, pathologist uh, who had done the autopsy. And we go over there. Now, keep in mind, when you're doing an investigation, you always want to be open-minded. You've got an objective in mind, and our objective was to find out, was it true that this was collected at this time? Well, during the course of our investigation, uh, an interview, and by the way, I was with uh, the public defender. Uh, his name is uh, Michael McCaney, and that name now is all over the news because he was a judge who just ruled against our local governor on a, on a TRO about uh, shelter-in-place rules. So I just want to throw that in to connect the dots there. Right. But he, he was the public defender. So him and I went over to Evansville, Indiana, and interviewed the pathologist. And so we're asking questions about who was all in the room, and was this true, was this collected? And during the course of our interview, first of all, we found out that, no, that was not true. But more importantly than that, asking a lot of questions, which is what, as good investigators, we have to do, come to find out the pathologist, which was never in any reports whatsoever, arrived on the crime scene four hours after the, uh, the bodies had been discovered. And guess what he did? He took photographs. And guess what? He had the photographs. Wow. Now, this gets real interesting, Jeff, because people always say about wrongful convictions and about planning of evidence. The murder weapon was a hammer. Okay? Uh, it was a hammer that uh, bludgeoned her to death. So, we'd already had crime scene photographs of the crime scene and what the CSIs had been taking photographs of. And there was a one particular location where uh, the crime scene investigator is going into the garage area where our client uh, was knocked out. So he's taking photographs in that area, the entryway. And what you will see there is you're going to see a piece of carpet, you're going to see an unplugged cord, and you're going to see nothing else on that carpet. So four hours later, when we finally get the pictures from the pathologist, and we're looking at his pictures that were taken four hours later, we look at the same scene, the same location, and guess what we see? The hammer. The hammer is laying now right there on that piece of carpet. The unplugged cord is now plugged in. Wow. The That's only crazy. thing that you can infer from that is that is planted evidence. There is no other explanation for that whatsoever. And the saddest thing about all this is, Jeff, is that um, I worked on this for 12 years. I went through multiple attorneys, law firms, uh, innocence projects. I would not give up on this case because I firmly believe in this man's innocence. And uh, we'd finally gotten him a new trial uh, at the appellate court, and that was based upon that expert uh, testimony that they determined to be junk science, and they reversed and was going to give him a new trial. So we're on the eve of trial. We're ready. We're going to go to trial. So I assigned my uh, nephew, um, Alan Profancic, to take over the case. I said, you know what? I can't see the forest through the trees. I've been in this case for 12 years. Fresh set of eyes. You know, put your ego aside and everything like that. Whatever you find is what you find. He didn't know much at all about the case, so he had to go work the case up himself. Lo and behold, he finds a fourth crime scene. He finds evidence that I had assumed was, had disappeared, like the burned-out car. It was mm -hmm. still there. 
There was evidence that was found there. We found other missing reports and missing photographs also that we found. So we're on the eve of trial. We're ready to go to trial. We've got experts ready to go, the whole nine yards. And uh, as what happens a lot of times in these cases, uh, a term uh, that your listeners are going to hear called the Alfred plea is, is offered. And uh, for those of them that don't know what an Alfred plea is, it's basically saying that, uh, okay, we're going to uh, allow you to plead guilty to this, but not admit guilt pretty much, okay? You're right. going to be able to say, well, the jury's got enough to find me guilty. However, I'm not pleading guilty, but, you know, in, in uh, basically in uh, view of everything that they're going to be willing to give me a decent, you know, basically plea offer, which with our client was saying, hey, you get out of jail. You get to walk home and go home right now if you just plead out to this versus going to trial. Well, we were just like, look, we knew the truth, and we just said, Jerry, you need to take this deal. You need to go home because now, after 17 years in prison, he had cancer, and he was dying. And he needed mm-hmm. to be with his family and stuff like that. Right. And, and uh, he, he did not want to do it because he was just, you know, he, he, was, he knew all the hard work we put into the case and everything like that. And, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we convinced him to take the Alfred plea. And uh, as we talk about uh, those moments in your lifetime that you'll always remember and you always cherish, um, is the day I get the call that he's getting out, um, and uh, I'm you know drove up there to the prison, and uh, after you know the twelve years I worked on the case, you know the, the additional year we'd worked on it as the agency, and uh, being there with his wife. Uh, whenever he's walking out the doors, first thing he does, he bends down, he kisses the ground, and he thanks Jesus. And, uh, and that's a moment that will, will last with me forever. Jerry became my friend um, through through all this stuff. You know, he passed away about two years ago. Uh, wow. But I always swore to him, and I still do to this day, that I'm going to continue this case because, you know what, that family that had that loved one killed, they still need closure. There's someone still out there that mm-hmm. really did this, that everybody had just blew off because, well, they charged uh, you know, Jerry with this, and it must have been true, or else he wouldn't got charged with the death penalty. But uh, it was to the point, Jeff, when we was getting ready to go back to trial, we had a sitting judge that was going to be testifying on our behalf. We had wow. some new evidence that we had uncovered, and we were going to have a sitting judge who was going to testify on our behalf. So this was going to get, uh, this came, thing could have been explosive. And if we went to trial and Jerry would have prevailed, which I feel strongly he would have prevailed, he would have probably ended up uh, owning the, our county that I live in because of the heinous, uh, what had happened to him and how egregious this, uh, you know, basically investigation and the wrongful conviction was. Hmm. But that was a case that, that just, uh, yeah, it's always been with me. And... Uh, when I share the case uh, around the country and they see all the evidence and all the different things that were involved in this case, because it had every element that you and I have ever investigated on cases, whether it be a jailhouse snitch, whether it be perjured testimony, whether it be missing evidence or junk science or, uh, you know, voodoo science or uh, dealing with the occult. I mean, this, this case had everything you can imagine. And, uh, yeah, so that's a case that's always always will stick with me. And, and it just goes to show to, you know, what you believe is what you believe in the fight and be the voice for the voiceless. And, that, and I think that's exactly what you and I do each and every day. That we're out mm-hmm. there fighting the good fight, 
and and uh, you know trying to be that voice for the voiceless people that are out there and there's a lot of them out there and uh, you know I, I just hope that uh, you know your listeners you know see that look we're just searching for the truth and we're not trying to make assumptions we're trying to go out and verify and a lot of times a lot of times a lot of stuff gets missed. You're you're absolutely right, and I, I was I was going to piggyback on that and talk about uh, something kind of similar. But this we've flown by this this uh, past hour. We only have about three minutes left, and we got to close out the show in three minutes. So I'd really like to have you back because I'd like to pick up pick up where we left off um, and and talk some more because I know there's some other questions I had for you and a lot more that we can talk about, but. In the next two minutes, switching gears, uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the Ready Response Investigative Network that you have created? And uh, we'll close out the show with that if if uh, you can summarize that in two minutes or less. Sure. Yeah. Uh, once again, I really appreciate it, Jeff. Uh, Ready Response was created out of uh, innovation and necessity with uh, technology being the way it is now. Ready Response is a, uh, a mobile app and an investigative network. And uh, the initiative was uh, helped uh, develop through the IntelliNet organization. And uh, through that group, we put together a nationwide network right now of over 500 investigators that are connected through mobile app technology to be able to respond to incidents and accidents whenever they happen. As a matter of fact, right now, Jeff, we're in the process of having uh, several uh, conversations with various state agencies and federal agencies in regards to how Ready Response can also help combat the COVID-19 in doing the contact tracing, uh, because uh, who's better to do interviews than investigators? And we've got a, you know, like I say, a nationwide network of investigators could immediately respond, and the app allows allows the reports to be created within the app and the reports submitted in like almost instantaneously as soon as you're done with it, the reports are coming in in near real-time information. So um, it's called Ready Response, which is R-E-A-D-I response.com. And what's the best way for clients to reach you and learn more about obviously what you do if they need some criminal defense work in the areas that you cover, but also to... uh, learn more about ready response best way to reach me would be on my email at mclean pi at gmail.com that's uh, m-c-c-l-a-i-n p is in paul i is in ivan at gmail.com excellent kevin thanks so much for taking the time like i said i'd really like to have you back on the show and we can uh finish off where where we uh from where we left off, because um, there's a lot more to talk about. So it was an list- honor and be a privilege. Okay. Excellent. We'll, we'll talk. Um, at, I'll, I'll touch base with you and see what your availability is like. For our listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I've enjoyed speaking with Kevin today. Please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to your podcast. As we continue to increase our listener base, we appreciate your positive reviews. Thank you. Be safe and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. 